Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director here at Boston Private. Uh, today we have two very special guests uh, that have distinguished careers in security, privacy, financial services, and global affairs. After leaving government, uh, they came together and founded a global security and risk management advisory company, coupled with a specialized security-focused merchant banking practice. We'll cover several areas, including an update on current ge geopolitical issues, the great reopening debate, and market implications of that, the upcoming presidential elections, uh, how industries are adjusting business models to bring back confidence, and how family offices are looking at potential opportunities in a post-COVID-19 world. Let's start with some brief introductions. My first guest is Secretary Michael Chertoff, who served as Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security from 2005 to 2009. Mr. Chertoff voluntarily gave up a lifetime appointment as a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit uh, when President Bush asked him to come and lead DHS in its very early days. Before serving as Secretary of Homeland Security, Mr. Chertoff was the Assistant Attorney General of the United States Department of Justice Criminal Division from 2001 to 2003 and has held numerous other prestigious legal position, positions in and outside of government. Mr. Chertoff graduated from Harvard College, Harvard Law School, and served as a clerk to Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. He's a co-founder and executive chairman of the Chertoff Group and serves on several boards, including as chairman of the defense company, BAA Systems. Uh, our other guest today is Chan Sweet. Chan is the co-founder and CEO of the Chertoff Group. He served, Chan served in the CIA and was the former chief of staff to the Department of Homeland Security. He's the co-chair of the Heritage Foundation's National Security Legal Working Group. He's a senior fellow at the uh, GW uh, University's uh, Homeland Security Policy Institute and serves as the current DHS Secretary's Homeland Security Advisory Council. Chad uh, serves on a number of boards as well, in, including as chairman of the cyber company Trustwave Government Services. Both Chad and the secretary have started a private equity practice uh, within the Chertoff Group, and they're currently raising a risk management and security-focused growth fund called MC Squared. Uh, I think it's important to note uh, the, the experience of these two gentlemen uh, with pandemics in the past. It'll give a lot of color to their uh, commentary today. Uh, Chad and, and the secretary worked along some of our top, country's top pandemic and uh, response and medical experts, such as Dr. Fauci, uh, to build our nation's early plans to respond to various pandemic scenarios. In 2005, they put those plans to test and help manage our uh, national response uh, during the outbreak of the H5N1 uh, avian flu. And after they started the Chertoff, they and their colleagues provided pandemic response during H1N1 uh, in 2009. Um, it gave them a lot to uh, lot to context for our discussion today, so I'm, I'm very excited about it. So let's get underway. Mr. Secretary, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, first question over to you. COVID-19 still tends to dominate headlines around the world. But certainly there's a non-related tensions are still occurring. I mean, in India and China, uh, are facing some troops killing each other in a disputed border region. First loss of life between those countries since the 70s. North Korea has literally blown up diplomatic relations uh, and negotiations in response to the South Korean propaganda efforts. Uh, the United States and Russia are talking, are restarting nuclear arms talks, both about a key player of China. How do we keep our eye on the ball and lead on these important global issues when everything we have to, with everything else that we have to do uh, on our own soil? Well, well, and without leading, let me just say good morning or good afternoon, everybody. Um, if it feels like a good afternoon, given all the things that are out there, and I appreciate people joining us uh, for this virtual session. 
And I think, and I, I have to say, I don't remember in my lifetime, uh, maybe the 60s is the one exception, a time with as much challenge and disorder from a variety of different fronts all coming at the same time. And of course, the lesson is you don't have the uh, ability to control when you deal with threats or challenges. They come as they, um, as they will. Clearly, the virus is still a very, very big issue. Um, and it's not unrelated to these other issues. Um, we've had a geopolitical challenge building over the last 10 years. Uh, the Russians under Putin, particularly when he came back as president after Medvedev, uh, became much more ambitious to promote his sphere of influence over what was the former Soviet Union. And that raised tensions uh, with the United States, first with President Obama, and also with his uh, neighboring region. We've seen a lot of um, efforts to undermine Ukraine. Uh, we saw Georgia, we see probing in other areas in what they call the near abroad in Russia. And of course, we've seen a lot of cyber activity, uh, malevolent cyber activity coming out of Russia. Um, the other major geopolitical development, of course, is China. When Xi Jinping came in several years ago, he basically reversed course from what had been a slow um, move towards a somewhat more political liberalization to go hand in hand with the um, economic uh, flourishing of China. He reversed course to kind of go back to a more traditional Chinese Communist Party model, where um, he exerts much more centralized control over activities of government and in the private sector as well. And this has culminated recently, of course, with the oppression against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, with what's going on in Hong Kong, and, and the uh, effort to have more control over national security there, and with an increasingly belligerent posture, not just to Taiwan, but to all of the um, uh, immediate regional area around China. Finally, let's not forget, we're still dealing with the issue of terrorism. And uh, in addition to jihadi terrorism, which remains an issue, although we've <clears throat> it's experienced something of a setback as ISIS has lost some of its territory, but um, we now have extremism of both the left and the right in the U.S. and elsewhere. And actually, in the last couple of years, more Americans have died um, at the hands of right-wing extremism than jihadism. So. All of these things are coming at once, and they're not totally independent. Um, the Russians certainly make an effort to stoke the flames with respect to extremism, as well as to undermine our ability to maintain unity of effort and cohesion in our society. And um, some of what the Chinese have done or not done in response to the pandemic has created additional levels of stress within the U.S., and their response in part is to engage in disinformation campaigns that are aimed at suggesting that somehow the U.S. started the virus and that China handled it perfectly. So there's a lot to keep your eye on and a lot to um, manage in the course of this next uh, couple of years. So, uh, Secretary, on that vein, uh, you know, the United States and China certainly fought a information war on COVID-19 earlier this year, and it doesn't appear to be over. Uh, in fact, the elections in the United States probably will probably bring it back front and center. How complicit was China in the pandemic, and how true are the assertions that, you know, that they're using this crisis to gain power uh, around the world? 
Well, I mean, I think they, um, for the first period of time they experienced this, they buttoned down all the information. They did not invite the international community in. Um, they managed what was publicly available. I think that minimized the challenge. Um, they covered up the fact that they were having difficulty, and that gave the pandemic an opportunity um, basically to gestate and get more uh, uh, powerful and then flourish. And that caught much of the world, I wouldn't say unaware, but underestimating the challenge. Um, now, of course, what the Chinese are doing um, is attempting to suggest they have the solution. And this is part and parcel of a larger initiative that's been underway for several years, uh, sometimes at least in part called the Belt and Road Initiative. This is an effort to in invest or put money into South Asia, Africa, other parts of the world, particularly the Southern Hemisphere, in order to embed Chinese technology and Chinese ideology in countries that are critical from a strategic standpoint because of resources or geographic location. So with the virus, again, the Chinese are offering assistance, um, but it never comes without strings attached. And this is all part of a contest over whether the Southern Hemisphere orients to the East or to the West as it develops over time. Chad, related to that, uh, the secretary mentioned Hong Kong and the national security uh, law that, that's coming out. What, what, is, what happens in Hong Kong with that? And do you think a change in the U.S. administration uh, will affect U.S. relations and tariffs? I think um, this development is uh, candidly a surprise, um, on, at least from my perspective. I, I lived in Hong Kong twice, once from 1994. To 1995, and then uh, I went down to Singapore for a few years, but then came back to Hong Kong in 1998 to 1999. And, and I did I did witness I was in Hong Kong at the time of the ceremony of the handover of the of the of, of Hong Kong from China uh, from the Brits to China. And uh, as you guys will remember, there was a what's called the SAR, a Special Administrative region agreement with the Chinese, and I think there was a lot of speculation at that time as to whether the Chinese would actually honor that agreement. And, and uh, um, I would tell you that I was in the camp of folks who thought they would honor it, and the reason why wasn't because I thought the Chinese were altruistic. I thought it was because it was in their self-interest, and that's because they knew that um, Hong Kong was a window on the future as far as the economic potential of China. It's the most, if you've ever had a chance to visit there, it's the most laissez-faire free market place on the planet. It's, it makes the United States look socialist. They look every square the street is used by vendors. They're, uh, they have no income tax at all. Um, so if you think about it in your mind, literally um, when the British took control of Hong Kong. It was a stain on the history of China. It was done uh, at a time when the British had superior military power. But if you roll the tape forward in the growth of China, if you think about it over the 100 plus years that the Brits uh, controlled it, literally, if the Chinese wanted to take it back, there's no way that, that the British could have stopped them from doing it, right? Which is their 1.4 
billion Chinese. There are only 67 million Brits, and they're halfway around the world. And so at any point in that over 100-year period, uh, if Beijing wanted to take back Hong Kong, they could. And the only reason they didn't is because they did believe it was in their interest uh, economically not to do so. So that's why, in the end, I think this shift that we're witnessing now is significant. Um, the violation of the national security agreements um, signals a, a sea change in the way that the Chinese are thinking about, or at least Beijing's thinking about Hong Kong. And that is that uh, it's no longer the case that it's in their, quote, perceived interest to continue to allow Hong Kong to be uh, that you know, free beacon of economic freedom and, and that they're going down to assert control. So I think at the end of the day, if you look at uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's speech, um, the one he just gave in NATO in Copenhagen, he references to not whether the U.S. is going to change the special status of Hong Kong, but when. And so the elections are coming up in September. And in closing, what I would say is we'll watch for the United States on how it reacts um, to the elections uh, and the change of the status. I think the key thing will be, too, that this has uh, not only profound implications for Sino-U.S. relations, but it will also signal, uh, it's an important signal to Taiwan on how much the West is prepared to stand up and meet its security agreements in the, in the Straits of Taiwan as well. And so this has uh, very profound implications globally, Eddie, and I think um, if you if you step back and look at this election year and you look at the uh, respective uh, policies and rhetoric that's coming out of both political parties in the United States, um, soon there'll be a convention with both parties will codify in the convention their party platforms. And I think what you'll see there is that um, both parties are trying to vie for the mantle of who's tougher on China. Uh, it's partly what, because of what you referred to before when talking to the Secretary about the, the anger over the Chinese having uh, not been as transparent and open on the outbreak of COVID-19. And so um, I think to answer the last part of your question, if there, you know, will there be a potential change if there is a change in administration? What I would, I think, at the Chertoff Group, our assessment is, is that there is more likely to be uh, overall continuity in the continued bipartisanship on getting tough on China, there will be nuances and differences if there is a change of administration on how to do that. Um, the Biden administration will likely take a more multilateral approach. Um, I'm not, I'm not making a political judgment about whether that's better or not. I'm just observing that that's probably the, the likely tenor and tone and tactical difference. But overall, in closing. Um, we don't see at the Chertoff Group a substantial change overall, just a matter of tactics and how that uh, that tough stance will be implemented. Thanks, Chad. Uh, Mr. Secretary, in the, in the middle of the pandemic, we also wit witnessed uh, the Saudi-Russian price, let's call it a conflict. Uh, you know, demand for oil has, has been deeply impacted by the economic slowdowns caused by COVID-19. Uh, with these softer oil prices, do they mean greater potential for certain countries to create wag-the-dog scenarios, and such as Russia and Ukraine, or, or maybe that's having some of the comments with Poland's president to keep U.S. forces in Europe? 
Well, I mean, I think there is a risk with Russia. Um, I mean, it's been part of Putin's strategy to keep himself relatively popular by distracting the public about failures in terms of economic development or what's going on internally uh, with a focus on uh, threats from what he perceives as enemies of Russia, um, including the United States. And so I would expect that with a soft Russian economy, particularly now he's going through an election underway um, in which if he wins, he's going to get to extend. I think they have a many in the Constitution. He'll extend his term, um, you know, potentially quite a bit. So I would think that there will be increased pressure uh, on, again, what the Russians call the near abroad. Um, and in particular, in the run-up to the election, um, Putin may see an opportunity to push further with respect to Ukraine. Um, he's, you know, been wooing Hungary with Orban, who's become an autocrat. Um, and I think there'll be other efforts to kind of um, promote uh, his agenda, his disinformation and his active operations in parts of uh, Eastern Europe and even Northern Europe. So uh, in that vein, you, you were the, the author of the Patriot Act, um, Mr. Secretary, landmark legislation that, that helped fight the global war on terror and subsequently led to a shakeup of restructuring of parts of our national security apparatus, uh, including the cabinet, uh, the creation of a cabinet-level department that you ran. Uh, do you think there will be a COVID-19 version of the Homeland Security Act, and will we see a restructuring around government's focus on life science research and biodefense? I don't, I don't think we're going to see a restructuring as much as perhaps now a more investment in the process of preparing for pandemics. You know, we did put together, as I think you said earlier, Ed, uh, a plan when I was in office to deal with avian flu. Um, and that included not just DHS participation, but health and human services, um, other departments, even the Defense Department to create some support with respect to medical operations. <clears throat> and we actually exercised it. I remember when we had the transition in 2009, we held an exercise with the incoming Obama administration about what to do with the pandemic. Uh, my feeling is in the years since then, because we didn't really have a serious uh, pandemic, we had some false alarms, there was a certain amount of complacency. And what I think we saw this year was the plans were kind of on the shelf and hadn't really been reviewed or exercised. The stockpiling of critical um, material had not been accomplished. Um, and therefore, we were kind of caught short. And so what I hope will happen is without creating new bureaucratic structures, there'll be a reinvigoration of the need to plan and prepare and train and exercise for pandemics, as well as building up some backup systems and resiliency with respect to personal protective equipment um, and certain kinds of other medical capabilities that could be deployed in the event of, of a new pandemic, because I think we're going to see more of this. This is not the last one. Uh, not only do we have global travel becoming very accessible now, but with climate change, um, there are now changes in the natural habitat that may, may actually wind up bringing human beings and animals in closer proximity. And that always creates the opportunity for a jump of a pathogen from the animal kingdom to the human 
species. So, I, I mean, th these issues are not going away. They're simply going to become part of the existing threat landscape. Chad, let's switch gears and talk about uh, COVID-19 and sort of the, the the great reopening of our economy and some of the implications there. I mean, COVID-19 deaths are north of 120,000, and we went from an unemployment rate in the in the threes in February to over 13% today, higher in many other parts of the country. Uh, you know, the travel and uh, restaurant industries have been crushed. We've spent trillions of tax dollars to support individuals and businesses affected by COVID-19, but the stock market continues to march up and to the right. Since the lows were, we saw in March, uh, what's going on? Well, it's a it's a great question. Um, I think you know, Eddie. The, in addition to I mean, served in the CIA and DHS. I also spent uh, 12 years of my life uh, on Wall Street with initially Morgan Stanley and then Goldman Sachs. And, and when I was there, you know, they taught me um, as a young investment banker during training that the markets are forward looking and the value of anything, including the stock market is the net present value of its future expected cash flows. So I think clearly the market is uh, looking past COVID and pricing in uh, a sharp recovery. Now, we've all heard the different, for those on the phone, they're managing assets. It's, you know, is it gonna be a V-shaped recovery, shape recovery, an L-shaped recovery? Um, I think the V camp was winning out when the Fed took such massive, uh, unprecedented, monetary action, uh, you know, it's rare here in Washington that Secretary Chertoff and I see uh, bipartisanship breakout uh, amongst the hyper-partisanship. And one of the few instances that that's happened is uh, there actually was a relative honeymoon between Republicans and Democrats if you look at the swift action that was taken on the fiscal side of the ledger. So things like the CARES Act, for example, these are unprecedented, even when you look at them as a percentage of GDP relative to the 2008-2009 great financial crisis. Um, we, we really haven't seen this level of, of monetary or fiscal intervention uh, since the Great Depression. So um, I think a lot of people were adopting the don't fight the Fed mentality and that uh, when the jobs report came out, uh, actually that really, you know, basically people felt like you had put the nail in the the uh, other shape theories and that the V shape uh, was accurate. And, and uh, but then we learned later, as you know, that the, the jobs numbers were actually off from the Labor Department. It's a rare, rare for that to happen, but because of COVID, it's creating some data collection challenges there. And once they updated the numbers, uh, the, the jobs creation was lower than, than what was reported. I think that, for the, those on the phone, the way that we think about it at the Charles Group in our, our private equity practice and our M&A practice is that it's really much more likely to be a, a W-shaped recovery. We think, you know, you're seeing this uh, spike up right now that's going on during the summer in terms of the stock market, as you noted, Eddie, but uh, quick observations would be that we think the fourth quarter is likely to be very difficult. Um, you have all the makings of a perfect storm coming in the fourth quarter. Um, on the uh, COVID side, you clearly have the potential for a second wave. Uh, we're already seeing signs of the spike and the spikes breaking out in different regions right now, but that's just the end of the first wave, not even the beginning of the second wave. Um, in addition, uh, in the first wave of COVID, we did not have to deal with seasonal flu. We will have to deal with that there. 
um, our colleagues at DHS uh, are preparing for a really nasty hurricane season that's been forecasted by the Hurricane Forecasting Center. It looks like there'll be 16 to 19 named storms, of which there'll be three to six major storms that they'll have to manage in addition to COVID and seasonal flu and other crises. And as the Secretary said earlier, you don't get to pick when crises are at your door. You have to deal with them as they present themselves. And so um, th this will all occur, and I'm sure we'll talk in a few minutes about this will all occur in a perfect you know, toxic brew where we will be reaching the peak of our political cycle. And as everyone knows, um, you know, as we sit here in Washington, that is the silly season where you will see uh, rhetoric on both sides of the aisle that will get hyper-partisan and extremely divisive. So the ability for the honeymoon that we talked about a moment ago will be is over. They'll be very difficult for there to be additional fiscal accommodation uh, in the fourth quarter. And I think the, the structural unemployment that you noted, this has not just been the sharpest uh, rise in unemployment since the Great Depression, um, but it will be hard to get those jobs to come back at the, at the rate that the market seems to be currently trying to price in. And it'll be twofold. One is that some of the jobs will require consumer confidence to come back. And our assessment is that it's very difficult for folks to start spending again or, or regaining confidence in purchasing large ticket items until they have better clarity over their, their jobs and their economic future. And then second, um, there are structural changes that, that are taking place as a result of COVID. Um, there will be certain jobs you know, on the re restaurant industry, for example, um, open tables projecting about a fourth to a third of every restaurant in the country will, will be gone and will not come back. That's not a, uh, a short-term change that will be a uh, very difficult long-term structural change in the overall employment picture because restaurants do employ a large number of people. If you look at other industries are experiencing similar types of situations, um, the Zoom video conferencing economy will lead to a long-term structural decline in business travel. Uh, office buildings will no longer have the same office density, et cetera. So you're gonna, there's gonna be some structural uh, employment issues that are going to come on top of this. And the last point would be, uh, as we think about time at the Turtle Group, we kind of break it into three buckets. There's BC time before COVID, there's DC time during COVID, and there's AC time after COVID. Even if we get to get to after COVID, you need a vaccine. And what I would ask everyone to keep in mind on the on the phone is if you think about your own children, your own lives, when the vaccine actually does get uh, created, and we are confident that there will be one. Um, the issue will be, you know, how quickly can you scale it? How quickly can you get people confident enough to use it? This is a vaccine that will, has been prepared in record time. Uh, there will be, I think, some anxiety uh, from certain people on whether it's safe. And so um, the best estimates are that we probably won't get it even with Project Warp Speed until January of 2021. And then to actually scale it and dispense it and get uh, folks confident to use it, um, you're likely to see some hesitancy there. And so we really don't think you're going to see an AC after COVID period until the latter half of, of two, 2021. So that's, that's going to mean for a very difficult period. And the, the V-shaped theory, I think, is uh, over, overly optimistic based on all the facts that we see at the turnoff group. 
Uh, thanks, Chad. Mr. Secretary, zooming out a bit, I mean, there's been reports about the EU considering a U.S. travel ban. Are we going to be seeing tit-for-tat uh, bans of travel between countries? And, and what do you think that spells out for economic or even political fallout? Well, I think, I think it's largely driven by the fact that they're looking at the statistics of rising uh, incidents of new cases here. And they view us as not being in control of the virus in the way they would like from those countries that they're willing to admit visitors from. I mean, to be honest, I suspect there's an element of what the Germans would call schadenfreude. You know, we've been, uh, uh, our administration's been critical of the Europeans, and pushing back a little bit uh, might be something that has a certain kind of emotional appeal. But I think it's largely driven, frankly, by the rising rates that we have in some part of the country. And you know, this is a trade-off in dealing with countermeasures. Um, obviously, the more you require lockdowns and, and continue with shutting down uh, certain kinds of activity, while that helps reduce the incidence, it does create economic harm. But there's also an economic harm with opening up too quickly. And um, because what happens then is uh, not only do more people get sick, but you wind up being viewed with a certain amount of skepticism around the world. And I think in general, we're in a period of time when the global trade environment has been under pressure um, ideologically. It's been under pressure um, from the virus. Um, And I think in general, just some of the geopolitical evolution is beginning to break the world a little bit more into separate spheres as opposed to a global trading environment, which is what we kind of all assumed was going to be the the 21st century. So these are, I think, it's a combination of factors at work here. So, Chad, uh, you you touched on this a little bit about the election. I mean, cybersecurity and foreign influence on political campaigns has certainly been a, a widely discussed topic in the Beltway and beyond for the last couple of years. Uh, is your is your team hearing concerns from state or and federal officials about potential threats in November? Yes, I mean I think there's no question um, that our adversaries, like in 2016, are are interfering already. Uh, there's ample evidence of that, and I think as the secretary noted before about the analogy to 1968, where you you have this confluence of multiple um, crises at once. That's actually an, uh, an appealing situation for our adversaries to take you know, pre-existing figures within our own society and then try to amplify that with misinformation or botnets or other types of uh, interference. So uh, we are seeing that, and I think it's it's uh, leading to, you'll hear in a minute, about some of our investment themes around cybersecurity. I think that's going to be a critical part the private sector securing its enterprise in a distributed, remote distributed workforce scenario that everyone's operating under now in the commercial space. But in a similar vein, uh, the election officials across the country, including support from DHS, which has a division called CISA, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, they've really doubled down on providing uh, cyber security solutions to reinforce and harden our infrastructure to prevent any kind of actual attempts to infiltrate, not just with information warfare, but also actually tampering with our election security systems. And those are going to be, you know, opportunities to 
see concrete uh, investable themes as we go forward. But Ed, let me add something. Okay. Um, and this is relevant to what we were talking about earlier about the fourth quarter. Um, you know, the, the putting aside foreign interference, I mean, even within the country, there is a lot of misinformation being generated. And of course, concerns about the virus have affected um, predictions about how easy it'll be for people to vote. Now, you know, not all, but I think the majority of states are, are loosening up on making mail-in ballots available, which I, I happen to think is a good thing. But I want to caution people about something, which we're seeing actually now as we speak. Um, unlike when most people vote in person and you get exit polls, and then like 20 minutes after the polls close, the TV networks announce who won the election, that is not going to happen in November. Um, there's going to be a, a days of waiting until all the ballots come in and they get tabulated. And that means we're going to have to be patient about getting definitive answers to the way the vote come out, comes out. In that waiting period, <clears throat> there's a lot of potential for misinformation and to get people alarmed and stirred up about all kinds of fanciful ideas about fraud, et cetera. That is a, a, a period of potential instability, which I think is also going to have an impact on the business community as well. So, I mean, when you look at the, at the um, medical situation, you look at the uh, changes taking place in, in the electoral process and the general economic downturn, I would agree that the fourth quarter is a time when it's going to take a lot of fortitude to weather the different, um, you know, buffeting forces. And, and you, you mentioned mail-in ballot. I mean, is that... Uh... Are there any other ways that you're seeing that uh, governments, whether on the state level, are looking at you know privacy and safety of individuals who are looking to to vote? I mean, if we get a spike in in late October or other effects, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, things. among the things being considered are early voting in, in person, um, and also creating more places you can vote. In other words, having curbside balloting where you can drop your ballots off someplace. Um, you know, like in a local uh, school or something of that sort. Um, obviously, it has to be done in a way that is secure and also doesn't expose people to, um, you know, a pandemic infection. But if they start planning now, they can make a considerable amount of progress to having multiple different ways in which you can register your vote. So, Chad, let's zoom back into the Beltway, uh, the Bolton book. We've certainly seen a steady stream of former government officials writing books over the years. Uh, but it, and to me, it certainly it feels like there's a, a large uptick in the last five to ten years. Uh, any of your thoughts on its veracity and validity, real news or fake, or both? Well, I, I know uh, Ambassador Bolton personally and uh, dealt with him during the 2016 election um, when he was informally advising the Cruz campaign. But I, what I'll tell you is that um, I, I, don't, I'm not, I, I don't think that I'll take a position on whether um, it's real. Or, I do think he, he is known to be a person that um, has strong views and also, but he is known to be someone who's honest. So I think that it will 
certainly in here in Washington, it's been like a bombshell that's gone off. And um, I think the the reality is that um, regardless of your views on Bolton or uh, you know, the political situation, the reality will be that it's it will actually trigger a couple of key events uh, that folks should keep in mind as we go into the election. As, as the secretary said, this will just add more toxic tox, toxicity to the to the mix here, which is that um, it, it is highly likely that the uh, the Congress and the Democrats in the House will at least get ask him to come forward and testify. Um, we may see another round of battling over whether um, the White House will try to block that testimony based on executive privilege and whether the courts will allow it or not, or whether Bolton will voluntarily testify is another question. His uh, counsel is a guy named Chuck Cooper, who's a personal friend of mine as well, who's one of the well-known appellate attorneys, and I think they're going to have to kind of get through that. But in the end, if they if and when they get him up there, um, which I think they will, it'll just be a matter of time before the election. Uh, he'll be put on the spot and um, potentially subpoenaed and required to testify under oath as to who else was in the room when he has, he saw certain things. And so there's not enough time to, I think, realistically have a second impeachment trial. But what you could, and I think the many, many would argue that we're so close to the election that it really for something as substantial as removing a sitting president, it, it's more the trial itself is really the, the election and, and the voters will decide the outcome of that. But I do think that there'll be uh, potential pressure for Bolton to reveal other witnesses that were uh, present for things that he saw. Uh, and that will create at a minimum um, quite a bit of, of fodder uh, during the campaign cycle on both sides of the aisle. So. Uh, bottom line is that this just adds to the toxicity and will create, as the secretary said, more potential for division going into the election. So let's switch gears here, Chad, and talk about the technology and sort of infrastructure changes that we might see in a post-COVID-19 world. I mean, I suspect that many of us uh, would have second thoughts of getting on an airplane if we showed up to an airport and they weren't using metal detectors or x-ray machines. Uh, what What is the post-COVID-19 version of body scanners? At airports, yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. And if you if to give it context, if you look at uh, when the secretary and I were looking at the situation on 9/11, there President Bush, as you, as you all remember, ordered the the grounding of all non-military flights for three days um, at 9/11. And then, if you look at how long did it take after that to restore aviation flight volumes back to the pre-9-11 level. And it's shocking when you look at the data, you'll see that it actually took three years to do that. So why? It's because, as you said, Eddie, there was uh, concern, real concern from you know, families whether they want to put their child on a plane knowing that there could be a terrorist threat. So um, you know, DHS was created, uh, TSA, the Transportation Security Agency was created, Explosive detection equipment was deployed to all airports. Um, the Federal Air Marshal Program for sharpshooters and civilian clothes was started to be put on planes. All these things were done in order to try to rebuild the confidence of the flying public. And that's exactly the scenario that we're in today. If you think about it, the, the, the average person is worried before they put their child on a plane 
and a, not only is there not a terrorist on the plane, but there's not a microbe that could kill or, or hurt their family or, their, or, or make them a, a conveyor of, a, of an infection that could hurt a member of their family. So um, if, if we step back and look at it, there, it is going to be a, a, a similar type of confidence building efforts made on the part of the government and the aviation industry. Um, that's actually an investable opportunity for those who have capital to be able to help help the government restore confidence and bring back the economy. And what do I mean by that? If you just kind of do an example of a walkthrough of what, what will likely be the, the new model for getting on flights, from the moment that you get out of your car, TSA is looking at doing socially distancing scanning. Instead of you going and handling into different things where you have lots of touching, they're going to try to minimize contact. Well, an investable opportunity set there will be assisting the government with contactless biometrics. So instead of walking up and handing your ticket and your driver's license to a human being and having touching going on and giving it back, it's, we have the technology and means today to provide contactless passage. So you would stick your driver's license into a kiosk. Uh, that's There's no, no person there that the kiosk would read the photo. It would take a live facial recognition shot right there on the spot and match the photo to the ID. It's much more accurate than a human being doing it, frankly. And then your ticket would be authenticated against that. You'd then be permitted to go through to the next scanning point. Um, they're going to be looking at options to introduce thermal scanners. This has been done in other parts of the world. U.S. Is, has been slow to adopt that, but there's some very promising uh, thermal scanning technology that can be deployed uh, at scale and at a distance to detect symptoms uh, that COVID would produce or other potential health threats as well. In addition, as you go through the checkpoint, the current advanced imaging technology that's done where you put your hand over your head, that's actually in a tube, a closed environment. Any kind of closed environment has low ventilation and it creates a higher risk of infection. There's some investable opportunities to look at providing open air panels that you could walk through that would be as or more effective than AIT, but not have the health risk. Um, and then once you get past that security checkpoint, once you get up to the actual gate itself to get on the plane, there's in a, the need to go ahead and do an additional check. The thermal scanners today are good. They're not perfect. And so before uh, folks would board, it's highly likely that there'll be a, a potential infrared, thermal, infrared thermometer check before you actually board the flight, the aviation industry itself is looking to build confidence in the air on the planes by upgrading their HEPA filters that filter the air, potentially including other technologies like UV uh, lighting disinfectants, and as well as having upgraded cleaning protocols on the planes themselves uh, with upgrading you know, disinfectants to industrial-grade, hospital-grade um, disinfectants that actually last longer and kill more microbes. And, and being able to do that on a frequent basis so that you could have a you know set of cleaning crews doing it once a day or in a light clean between flights, having a better integrated uh, technology-enabled service that does much deeper cleaning more frequently. And so those are all investable opportunity sets in one example industry. And that will not just be in aviation, it will be true in any any industry that has contact with others at any large scale. So think of you know, office buildings, 
hotels, cruise lines, et cetera. All of them will need to be rethinking, as you said, Eddie, how do we rebuild that confidence of the consumer to come back? What about biometrics? I mean, several high-profile companies, and you know, including some major U.S. cities, have very publicly banned facial recognition. I mean, what does that mean for security in general in cities or at airports or other sensitive areas? I mean, are we looking at contactless biometrics for the future? Yeah. No, was... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Cedric. I was saying, you know, that's it, it, it's an interesting um, recent development because it also reflects that what sometimes happens with the technology. Uh, there's a benign, perfectly straightforward use, and then there's a second use that comes up, and that, that is alarming to some people, and people don't differentiate between the two. So let me separate out the two elements of facial recognition. I think what has caused alarm is the idea of using facial recognition on a large scale in public spaces to identify who is in the space, who is going where, for forensic or investigative purposes. And, you know, that's understandable because you have stories about mistaken identity or someone being falsely accused, or is that being used for uh, purposes of political surveillance or some kind of authoritarian impulse? And I think there will be limitations on the ability to use surveillance in public spaces on a, on a scaled-up basis. But a second kind of facial recognition is what I do when my phone goes uh, dark and I pick it up to look at something and it gives me the option of either punching in a number or looking at the, at the face of the phone, and then it lets me in. I don't think people are alarmed by that kind of one-on-one -on -one facial recognition. So to the extent what Chad was talking about involves going to the airport and you know, standing in front of some uh, device that will check your face and match it to your passport, I don't think that's going to be an issue that's going to be problematic. So the, the key is to make sure you understand the use to which something is being put, because that's where the, the, you know, the kind of rubber meets the road. We've seen this, by the way, in other areas as well. Whenever you're dealing with cybersecurity or tech issues, you know, there are many benign uses um, that are, are perfectly consistent with privacy and, and human rights. But then you do get some uh, vendors who come up with applications or uses for technology that, you know, could certainly lead to a, a discomfort from a privacy standpoint. And one of the things we believe in is when you invest, particularly these days, you need to consider the reputational issues and the kind of social impact issues of the investment. Because what you don't want to do, and I'm not going to mention the name of the company, is invest in a company and then find out later that it's claimed to fame as it's helping authoritarians oppress minorities. No, that, 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 that's clearly um, an important issue there. Uh, Chad, what about contact list? Biometrics. I mean, are there are there opportunities there that you see coming out post pandemic? Yeah, absolutely, and I think as the secretary said, um, you know, in the MC squared fund, we look at this as an investable opportunity. We absolutely are looking at contactless biometrics, and it will be deployed um, in a number of scenarios. I think the secretary said it right, which is that we have to look at it from the standpoint of not just the use case, but realistically, in order to get user adoption. 
you do need to look at the, the privacy issues. I think right now, um, we, we know, for example, as I mentioned before, if you go to the airport, the facial recognition uh, option is there for TSA to consider, but it will have to be done under certain protocols and guidelines. Um, I think the the reality is that there'll be winners and losers in that space, and, and, it, and facial doesn't have to be the only one. We, we fully expect, as the Secretary said before, on the iPhone example, uh, many of us remember in the prior versions pre-iPhone 8, you had a fingerprint reader. Um, Apple was the very first mass consumer product to really get large-scale consumer adoption of fingerprint as a biometric. It wasn't that the fingerprint technology wasn't there before Apple. It wasn't there the fact that the, the cost was too high before Apple deployed it. It was a lack of confidence on the part of the consumer, as the Secretary said, about the security and, and whether they would be comfortable with it. And because Apple's done a very good job of really showing that one of their, quote, you know, their differentiators in the technology space is they've been a, a real champion of data privacy. And as a result of that, they've, they've won the confidence of a lot of consumers and uh, we have seen, the, in the same way that we saw the fingerprint explode as a, as a viable consumer adoption uh, bi uh, biometric authentication, facial recognition was exploding as a result of the iPhone 10. And so even though right now there has been a hiccup in terms of there are some reports about potentially differential accuracy levels for Caucasian faces versus African-American faces, et cetera. Those are issues that are gonna be, they have to be addressed, especially it's so important in, the, in this moment right now as we deal with racial justice that those types of discrepancies have to be um, addressed. And, and there are a number of algorithms and FR and facial recognition that have not had those types of uh, racial discrepancies. And so as the Secretary said, being able to find the ones that actually meet the privacy concerns, give the consumer the confidence that are being used in an appropriate way that helps make their lives e easier, safer, but also that their data is protected. Uh, those are the, the lenses through which we look at when we invest. And uh, in closing, what I'll say, as you noted, this is not, uh, as the Secretary said, just limited to the airports. It's gonna be, if you think about all of us, if, when we go back someday, to an office, um, if you if you if they're real estate property owners, they're going to have to think through how do I allow for the least friction of people coming into my building and getting to their floor. They need to be able to authenticate themselves through frictionless authentication, and you can envision this will be done through your cell phone, through facial, through other types of uh, contactless biometrics, getting on the elevator will change. Um, you'll see the ability to authenticate which floor you're authorized to go to without having to touch a button. Um, the same ventilation points we noted earlier, there'll be investable opportunities to help office buildings upgrade their, their filters. Um, they'll upgrade their UV uh, disinfectants on their filtering systems and their cleaning protocols. So the whole that whole thematic around decontamination or decon and cleaning is something that we're very 
uh, focused on, and it's a it's a was pre-COVID about a sixty billion dollar market, growing at about six point three percent CAGR when you look at independent studies, and it's actually more than tripled that growth rate as a result of COVID. And it, it won't. When we think about the, again that lens of BC time, BC time, and AC time, you need to be thinking about investing in opportunities that that help stand the test of the AC period, meaning after COVID's over, some of these uh, cleaning and hygiene uh, protocols will go away. Face masks may not be required. So that PPE investment in that would be uh, not standing the test of a AC test, but investing in consumables like, you know, these new HEPA filters or stronger disinfectants, those protocols will uh, remain in place because as the secretary said earlier, this isn't the first epidemic or pandemic that we've had, and it will not be the last. And so these will be just like we have explosive detection equipment in airports today from 9-11. Uh, so too, we will have long lasting business model impacts, particularly in decon and cleaning that will remain for years to come. So, Chad, what about the protocols for working from home? I mean, that seems like it might become you know, maybe not a permanent state, but certainly a lot more work from home given the future um, uh, of a post-COVID-19 world. I mean, we we all saw the Zoom security uh, compromises and, and, and the thoughts on, on that. Where do you see the f future of the security of work from home and, and using technology to support that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up Zoom because if you look at, um, you know, work from home or WFH is the kind of phrase that people are using for it. Um, this you know, a WFH moment um, where you've got remote distributed workforces, that really is, it should have been the kind of golden moment for Zoom. And it was for, for a period. And then, as we all know, unfortunately, um, because they underinvested in cybersecurity, uh, we all of us learned the phrase Zoom bombing. That was a function of folks hacking into Zoom systems. Um, that unfortunately happened in live video conferences. And so a number of customers, major customers like governmental customers, education and academia customers, um, after the initial wave of Zoom bombing and hacking happened, there were um, you know, uh, various customers in the government and education that banned Zoom as a platform. And so the CEO, unfortunately, had to do an apology tour. Um, they had to roll out a 90-day plan on how they were going to upgrade their security. And if you look at it, it cost them about $12 billion in terms of actual market cap at the peak. At the peak to the trough of this crisis, they lost $12 billion in their stock price uh, market capitalization. But then they went ahead and started to invest a fraction of that into trying to regain trust. Um, at the Trump Group, we advise and work with Andreessen Horowitz, um, and we were able, many of us, to get a, a piece of equity in a company called Keybase, which is an encryption an, an encryption company, and that was acquired by Zoom, uh, where the CEO wanted to demonstrate to the world that they were taking cybersecurity seriously and they weren't just getting additional um, you know, outside vendors to help them, but they actually acquire an uh, encryption company and, and inculcate that into the core of their actual business model. And so um, that's one example, Eddie, of where uh, in this remote distributed workforce environment, 
there's never been more of a need for cybersecurity. Um, and that's an area that uh, in the MC Squared Security Fund that we focus heavily on. We've made investments in companies that help other companies get secure uh, in the cloud. One was Cold Fire Systems that we did. We brought it to Carlisle and, and then together grew that company. We more than tripled revenue um, from about 50 million to 150 million and then um, brought it from EBITDA negative to EBITDA positive and just sold that a little over a month ago to Apex Partners out of the UK for $350 million and 22 times even a multiple. And if you look at uh, other companies like Cripsis, which is a leading instant response provider, uh, we've had a good investment that's continuing to grow like a wildfire right now in this current environment where there are a number of breaches that are happening and these instant response companies, there aren't a lot of them, especially there aren't a lot that are highly qualified and approved by the insurers. And so that's been a great investment for us. And then lastly, we uh, just made, along with Insight Partners, uh, where we co-invested with them in uh, Veeam, V-E-E-A-M, which is a disaster recovery and backup uh, company. It's uh, got almost $900 million in revenue, over a billion in bookings. Uh, it just grew over 21%. At the end of this uh, last quarter, we invested in February, and it's uh, already ranked by IDC as the number one in this subsegment globally in terms of growth. And so um, that is an emission critical part of this new distributed workforce environment where you have work from home, where people are accessing data in the cloud. And the last thing that a company or enterprise can cut back on, they're going to cut back in this crisis on a ton of discretionary spending, but they will not cut back on the things that would jeopardize enterprise security, which would be including more and more of their data being in the cloud, they have to be able to restore that in the event of a crisis. So um, I think in the end, stories like Zoom are very instructive about why in the new you know, DC during COVID world and in the AC after COVID world, uh, these enduring investments in cybersecurity solutions are going to be a permanent part of the new digital economy. Thanks, Chad. Uh, Mr. Secretary, let's close out the economic discussion on uh, supply chain risk management. I mean, I, I live in a congested and very dense Manhattan, and we certainly saw a lot of those disruptions in March and April, and some of them continued till today, but those were not limited to, to large cities. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on how companies with really complex global supply chains are going to be able to be resilient uh, on a go-forward basis. Where do you see that changing in, in, in companies that are adapting uh, to a new reality? I, I think um, both in general and also specifically in the tech sector, um, there's now a renewed appreciation about the importance of resilience and alternative sources of supply for your critical components. Some of that is driven by the experience of the coronavirus. Some of it's been driven, frankly, by national security concerns over the last few years about the degree to which in building out our 5G infrastructure, for example, we are uh, potentially excessively reliant upon Chinese vendors <clears throat> like Huawei, which gives the Chinese leverage over our economy that creates national security issues. Uh, the result of this, I've been involved in a couple of efforts along this line, has been to really for the first time seriously consider a U.S. government policy and maybe a policy in conjunction with our allies that would encourage and create a bigger market for 
Western companies to get involved in producing the technology building blocks that are now incorporated in the final products that we, we assemble in the United States. That includes chips, it includes other kinds of hardware, um, you know, uh, things used for towers, cell towers, and things of that sort, as well as software. And uh, for example, there are some companies like Nokia and Samsung and Ericsson that potentially could compete with Huawei on price and scale, but we need to kind of foster a market. So I think we're going to see some return to investment and value being placed on having in the West, among Western democracies, uh, a critical mass of uh, companies that can innovate and scale on the components of our IT infrastructure. And that, I think, is going to be a very interesting and important area of investment. So. Uh, on those heels, uh, Chad, and, and you know, we talked a lot about trends. You talked about a lot about opportunities uh, in a post-COVID-19 uh, world. Are there any other investment opportunities or opportunities that uh, family offices should consider, uh, in, based on the things that you're seeing at the Chertoff Group? Great. I would, let's start with what you should not consider. I think one of the things that we touched on again at, in our investment committee, like the secretary said, we look at that AC test, right, which is right now there's a lot of investable opportunities that people are pitching uh, that we've seen at the Terrell Group that they are going to make money and be relevant um, in the DC time during COVID. But if you look, if you put them through the paces and really stress test the thesis, um, many of them fail the AC test after COVID. And, and you know, we really need to be thinking about, we want to have an enduring long-term systemic themes and an example that's not one of those is contact tracing. We've been approached by various companies that do various types of uh, social uh, social media mapping and uh, using mobile phones and other types of techniques. Um, but we can tell you is that if you look at you know one of our and this is public one of our clients is Apple that we've worked with on a variety of issues, in security and encryption. Um, but if you it's been announced in the, and they've made it Google and Apple who are normally fierce competitors, right? They're the, the two world's largest cell phone uh, manufacturers. And if you look at their, um, this is a moment where they've come together, they're providing integration between the two platforms to allow for contact tracing. But if you actually dig into it, as the secretary said before, we wanna use our knowledge and at NC Squared Security Fund here in Washington about regulation, legislation, and policy to help filter out investments that don't make sense and those that do, finding the winners and losers. And if you look at, in this case, the privacy emphasis in contact tracing is a good thing for public health. It's a good thing for consumer adoption, but it, it's actually, in the way it's gonna be implemented, it will not produce a sustainable long-term business model. Number one, Google and Apple won't allow digital ads to be used in, in the business model. Number two, they will not, um, they won't retain the data for more than 14 days. Number three, they're not gonna allow for social graphing. And number four, they intend to delete the system once the, the uh, COVID crisis is over. And so when you, that's an example of, again, you gotta be very careful and apply rigorous analysis to make sure that it's going to pass the AC test. And so um, 
when we step back and look at the other areas, though, where there could be opportunity, we've talked already about the really exciting opportunities in, in cybersecurity. Those will be long-term. We've talked about decontamination and cleaning. Those will be, you know, some of those are going to be not uh, long-term, but many of them will, and, and knowing how to navigate that will be important. Um, the decon cleaning one is particularly interesting because it's also out of that um, $60 billion market now that it, it is actually broken into the three buckets, equipment, consumables, and then tech-enabled services. If you look at the consumable piece is actually very interesting because you get recurring revenue there. Um, but what's important is that some of those will be commoditized over time. And so knowing how do you invest in, in differentiated products that will be sustainable over the AC test, that's going to be critical in that space. But it's also, it's less sexy and cleaning is not that sexy as cyber. And so you can get some really good entry points and evaluation. It's also highly fragmented. It's many mom and pops. There's only a handful of large providers like Ecolabs or JamPro that can do it at scale. And so there's plenty of room and space there to uh, do roll-ups and other uh, types of investments. On the two other areas, though, Eddie, that, that we didn't have a chance to touch on, I'll just hit very briefly. One is biodefense, um, and the other is one that the Secretary you know, touched on as well, but we'll give a little more color on is supply chain. On the biodefense side, um, if you think about um, when we were at Homeland Security, FEMA is in that is in, our, in the department, so we have to be ready to handle every year the hurricane season. As I mentioned before, the, the nation, after many difficult hurricanes, did invest in the infrastructure to create the Hurricane Forecasting Center, the HFC. And so, um, and I mentioned what this year's forecast is. Um, what you can do is if you look at that was born out of a crisis. If you look at DHS, that was born out of 9-11. If you look at DOD or CIA, those were created after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the, and the crisis of, 19, of World War II. So all these crises tend to re help the government get better at structuring itself to manage and risk. And that's what's going to happen. We would uh, suggest to you that out of this crisis and, and the pandemic, um, the, the thing that Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, called for in a TED Talk five years ago that we need to have a much better uh, global pandemic surveillance and monitoring detection and response capability, that, that is going to need to be uh, significantly upgraded. And there are many providers of predictive analytic services in the private sector where in our consulting practice at the Turtle Group we work with. Um, and we've actually helped do predictive analytics and pandemics with uh, partnering with Marsh McClellan, which is one of the world's largest insurance brokers. Um, there are billions of dollars of insurance exposure at risk that are affected by pandemics. So this is something that's needed not just by the governments around the world, but it's also needed by the inter large enterprise uh, segments. Any business that has you know global operations has an has an interest in this as well. And so those. Um, predictive analytic models, we think, are going to be very attractive. They tend to have very high margins. They also tend to be subscription-based, so you, get, you can deliver it in a SaaS-type model with really good recurring revenue. Um, and so that's clearly another opportunity set, and there will be others like that in biodefense as well. If you look at supply chain, just to tease that last theme out a little bit more, as the Secretary said, this, the global supply chain that existed after World War II 
that was developed to be very lean. It was the just-in-time inventory. That just-in-time inventory now, uh, I think history will look back and, and show that it was already strained before COVID, but COVID put the death nail in that post-war just-in-time inventory architecture. So instead of having a lot of the global world's manufacturing and other uh, inventory capability dependent on predominantly one country like China, um, that is now going to be actually re-architected, re and some of that will be done voluntarily because com uh, companies, just in terms of managing their own risk, will not want that kind of concentration risk going forward. So they'll be looking to diversify and they'll need the analytic tools to help them do that. And so being able to invest in helping them do uh, supply chain analytics to see alternatives for gaining redundancy to reduce concentration risk. Uh, there are a number of companies that we're following like Interos um, and GRX combined with BidSite and others that can do these types of forensic analyses. So that's more voluntarily done in FedEx, uh, sorry, Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, he's saying based on what the volume, volumes and traffic that FedEx sees, this is already happening uh, out of China. It's already, he's already seeing that in his shipment flows analysis. The second piece though, as we sit here in Washington, as you'll see, some of it's gonna not be voluntary. Some of it's gonna be mandated around the world by nationalist legislation. And what I mean by that is, uh, as the Secretary noted, a number of vulnerabilities have been revealed by COVID and you know, countries around the world are going to reevaluate that. And so there is going to, there's already uh, legislation that's been proposed. One example would be the Co Senator Cotton, Mike Gallagher bill on the pharmaceutical industry. And that's going to require, um, as proposed right now, that in two years, the United States government will not buy any pharmaceutical where more than 50% of the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredients come from China alone. And so that's just one example of where that, that bill, by the way, has got bipartisan support. It's not 100% clear whether it'll pass right now, but that is one of several bills that we're seeing here in Washington that is a trend line that's undeniable. And as we mentioned before, it doesn't matter which party you're from, both are trying to fight for who's toughest on China. That's gonna be a reality from this new nationalist uh, legislation and regulation. So we think there's an opportunity for what we call reg tech where we can help companies with solutions that allow them to be compliant with these new nationalist uh, legislation regulation, but do it in a cost-effective way. And um, that's gonna be a long-term AC test trend. It's gonna be, it'll take many years to re-architect the global supply chain to do that. And we've already demonstrated the MC Squared Security Fund. We, we invested that company I mentioned to you before, Coal Fire Systems, that we sold to Apex. That company uh, was a reg tech play. It was a, basically, um, there's a thing called FedRAMP, which is if you're gonna sell any kind of service, managed service into the United States government, you need to be FedRAMP certified to do that so that you're secure in the cloud. And so um, this company, we built it up. It, it was the number three FedRAMP certifier in the country. We acquired another company called the Veris Group, merged the two and became the number one FedRAMP certifier. Um, so from a cloud security point of view, uh, it's a good example of reg tech uh, 
plays. And so there'll be similar type of reg regulation technology compliance plays around these supply chain security mandates that will happen not only in the United States, but in other countries as well. Great. And Chad, uh, we touched on it briefly uh, on MC Squared. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys are focusing on there? Well, I think there, what we'd say is all the things that we've talked about today, um, many of them happen to be around, you know, that do perform well in a, a COVID DC time and AC time. But what we would say is our fund is not, we didn't create this fund to cater to the current pandemic. This is, the pandemic is rather just straight down the fairway of what we do. And so since we're a security focused firm where we do nothing but security and risk management, both through our consulting arm, where we have a world-class, well-established consulting brand that has been built up over a decade that services uh, the top corporations around the world in a variety of industries on meeting their security and risk management needs. That's informed then our investing uh, practice, and that has been a key synergy and thesis that's been able to, enabled us to differentiate ourselves among others that are in this moment. And so, obviously, with the pandemic, many other industries that are typically investable, like energy, are going through turmoil, uh, hotels, retail, real estate. But this moment of dislocation you know, is straight down the fairway for the type of risk management investing that we do. And um, we've only touched on a handful of those themes, but there are a variety of others like defense technology. Um, we also invest in various homeland security uh, plays as well as government contracting. And those all have proven to be extremely recession resistant, uh, partly because as you can see right now, even though there's been tremendous pullback in the commercial space, uh, the government is a spender of last resort. And as I mentioned before, on the fiscal stimulus side, uh, they've been a, a major um, force for stability during this moment and will continue to do so. And there's opportunities there where we invest in defense, um, military, intelligence, community capabilities that all continue to be funded as we go through the crisis. Um, but in closing, what I, what I would say is, uh, any those that are on the phone that are part of your network, we've known you personally for years and, and trust you and obviously any members of the Boston private, you know, overall broader relationship network and family, well, we certainly would welcome as potential partners in this uh, growth fund if there was interest and we can have them you know, reach out to us uh, or to you, Eddie, whatever you know, might make sense uh, after the call. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate that. Uh, so did I get it right? BC, DC, and AC. That's right. Excellent. But I think and one thing to make clear on our fund, by the way, since you said the various Cs, one VC, meaning venture capital, this fund is a growth fund and we, we don't do venture. We help advise venture, venture funds and we work to help them accelerate growth in those companies. Um, but this fund really fills a void right now, which is there, there's a lot of money in the VC side of the house, uh, and there's a lot of money at the higher end in the buyout funds. But in the security and risk management space right now, there's really a void uh, in that space, and that's that's the space we intend to fill. Great. Uh, I'm looking at the Q&A bar here. I think we've answered you know several of these questions that come through, but one that we didn't, uh, Mr. Secretary, if you wouldn't mind, 
responding to is that you know there's been assertions that there are certain countries that are less um, transparent on reporting that are under-reporting COVID-19 cases and deaths and and similar factors. Where do you think that's going to, is there any validity to some of that? And how will that affect, you know, our ability as a, a, you know, as a nation and and globally to to get on and and get to that AC environment? Well, it's hard to, I've not heard that assertion and it's hard to distinguish between deliberate underreporting and underreporting that just comes because of lack of capability of testing or problems with the reporting environment. I think in general, um, around the world, we've been slow at being able to detect and monitor. Part of the problem is, unlike many past pandemics or epidemics, where you had you know symptom, symptoms almost immediately, uh, and so people knew how to get tested and when to get tested, here we do have people who are asymptomatic or presymptomatic, and they may not get tested. So I don't know that that, that in itself is um, of great significance, but I think um, in general we have to have a better handle on the statistics and the trends. And this question comes from a, uh, a family office in Colorado asking about uh, Poland's recent visit and, uh, to the United States and meeting with President Trump around security shifts. Uh, do you? Are, are there issues that are continuing to unravel with transatlantic partnerships, and do we will we see a NATO in 2030? You know, I think we will see NATO continue. Uh, it's no question that this administration has put that transatlantic relationship under enormous stress. But I will say that I think if you look at Congress, um, there still is a substantial <clears throat> appreciation of the importance of this relationship, and. Um, you know, certainly, if there's a change of administration in, uh, you know, 2021, I think things will resume, um, you know, fairly quickly uh, to a close relationship. Um, you know, if it continues like this, I, at some point, I don't know whether we'll cross a Rubicon, but my my hope is that while there's been a certain amount of bluster, um, we will recognize the importance of having a unified front when we deal with the Russians. Chad, and you can feel free to pass on this question. This comes from a, a family office in New York. Any predictions on the, in the presidential elections uh, this year? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'll, I will, uh, we'll, we'll pass it. The Turtle Group and the NC Square Fund were not political. We were, you know, professionals in both you know, private equity as well as and security and risk management. And so um, I think it would be wise for us to stay in our lane, which is, uh, you know, in, in what we do. But I will, the only prediction I think we'll make and that the secretary said it earlier is just that it will be a historic election because of COVID. It will, we need to start messaging to the public that the results won't be in, you know, the, as we're normally used to as swiftly. And, uh, it's absolutely critical as a as a democracy that um, no matter you know, which party wins or loses, that the overall integrity um, of the system be respected, and that that's really I think the the most important thing right now is to not let our adversaries try to sow seeds of doubt uh, around what has fundamentally you know, been uh, one of the world's you know shining examples of, of a good democracy over two centuries now. And I do think that 
uh, those of us that have capital are privileged to invest it. Um, the secretary has always challenged us to, to live a motto, which is, you know, to do well and do good. Meaning we we do we are a for-profit uh, firm and we make good money for ourselves and our investors. But we also do want to make the world a safer place. And if we have the ability to deploy capital and achieve a, a double bottom line, where we're helping not only our to make really good returns for ourselves and our investors, but also make the world a safer place and, and a more resilient place. We certainly want to do that. And I think there there is going to be a call to arms right now. This is a moment where we can together um, help you know, the election infrastructure remain robust and strong, as well as to help not only the United States, but other countries to defeat the COVID virus and, and make sure that after this is over, the global health infrastructure is better prepared the next time around to deal with it, what will inevitably be another pandemic. Thanks. That's the time that we have for questions today. So thank you for our, uh, our participants or for submitting those. And the last uh, comment I'll make is on the a risk survey that we're we're partnering with the, with the Chertoff Group, and I'm very excited about that around risk management and family offices. Uh, I think it'll be uh, an exciting one to work on with um, covering many aspects of risk, you know, financial, cyber, physical, and the like. Um, so we, we're currently out soliciting um, input from family offices uh, in co conjunction with the Chertoff Group and other partners. So we're very excited, and we'll be providing those results um, in the fall. And the Chertoff Group will also be working with us to support some family office security uh, related content for those that participate uh, throughout the year. So this this is a, a great opportunity to partner. So I, I appreciate both of you uh, today. So, you know, thank you, uh, Secretary Chertoff and Chad. I really uh, do appreciate your thoughtful insights. And we certainly covered a, a lot of interesting ground. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests or have any questions, you can check out their website at www.chertoffgroup.com. Or you can send us an email uh, to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for our newsletter, get this podcast, and much, much more. Uh, and that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. Be sure to subscribe uh, to you know our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Again, thanks to our panel, and thank you to everybody who joined us today. That's it, uh, and thanks, and bye, everyone. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.